0: Wait for the car, wait for the car. Hey, it's Ben Hernandez, and this is episode three of I've Been Thinking. I have to say I've been blown away and super encouraged by all the responses I've gotten so far for the episodes I've made. Thanks for all of your kind words of encouragement. And now for the elephant in the room. I know it's been some time since I've released episode two and let's just say it's been a hard few weeks for me. And frankly, doing anything well has been kind of a feat. I'm sure I'll do an episode about it soon, so stay tuned. But as has been my discovery in general with this podcast, finishing this episode has been life giving, and at times just what I needed to get through it all. So what's this episode about? Well, In it, I'll explore what it means to be authentic and how being authentic in your actions, speech, and even to yourself has become harder and harder for many of us today. It's a topic that I've considered a lot lately, particularly, and I hope that even for a few of you, you find it meaningful. All right, enough chat. Here's episode three on authenticity. It used to be that you could take a man at his word. Every word had a clear meaning. It was literal. At some point, that changed. The idea of sarcasm has been around for some time, but the idea of ironically liking something into popularity? Well, you have me and my fellow millennials to thank for that. So what's your name? My name's Sanjaya. Sanjaya. Remember Sanjaya? Sanjaya. If you don't remember, Sanjaya Malakar was a shy teen who entered the open audition for American Idol in Seattle with his sister. Now, you were inspired by Stevie Wonder? Yeah.
1: Let me hear you sing some Stevie.
0: He once cited Stevie Wonder as his idol, and he sang Wonder's signature song, "Sign, Seal, delivered, I'm yours, in his Seattle audition.
1: Simon, what do you think
0: of uh, Sanjaya? A lot better than your sister. America loved Sanjaya. Well, sorta.
1: Submitted this proposal. Vote Sanjaya! Uh, is this about Sanjaya?
0: No, it is in- Vote Sanjaya. He ended up as a finalist in the sixth season of American Idol and gained national attention for controversially advancing to seventh place with public votes, despite being poorly received by the judges, in particular, Simon Cowell. What had become painfully apparent was that people loved him ironically, because, well, frankly, it was funny. The interesting part was that a huge reason that American Idol got to be popular in the first place was that viewers could affect the outcome, but this was unprecedented. Ultimately, this feature of the show would prove to be a bug, as it made it easy and for some fun to make, if you're an American Idol purist, a mockery of the entire process. But making Sam and look foolish is just the tip of the iceberg. For many of us, our love for irony goes even deeper down to the clothes we wear, the music we listen to, to the movies we watch, and the words that we say. This makes identifying what the collective we like even more of a challenge. For everyone who, quote, worships the entire Michael Bolton catalog or loves that Dick Trickle shirt that they bought at Goodwill or has Rickrolled their buddy at work, there is at least a few people who really, genuinely love and appreciate those things. For one reason or another, we have built a popular culture around, for the lack of a better verbiage, liking bad things, disliking and mocking those that genuinely like or care about those very same things. This might be the echo chamber that I live in speaking, but for many of us, it's almost shameful to like some things if you're a certain type of person. In my case, I was fundamentally opposed to listening to top 40 music. If an artist wasn't a dead jazz musician or praised by a pitchfork, I snobbishly shrugged them off as bad and would make some elaborate excuse for why the musicality of most pop music was substandard and that I valued the musicianship of lesser-known indie artists over that of artists that were readily available on the radio. I can even remember making fun of a song around someone that I later realized actually liked it. (laughs) I believe I said that Kelly Clarkson Stronger belonged on the soundtrack of music that would be played at a Curves gym to a friend who apparently used it as a daily affirmation of sorts. I felt bad about it when I said it, and if this offends you, I am truly sorry, but I'm not wrong, am I? Looking back on it, it was kind of absurd how many times I thought less of people for liking the wrong kind of music, even if it clearly meant something to them. All the while knowing that I had my own closet full of guilty pleasures that at points in my life I would have been horrified if anyone had found out about. Mostly because it was either way too stereotypical or, frankly, too popular. Case in point. For a period of time in college, I not-so-ironically listened to a lot of John Mayer, and I used to say it was because of a girl that I was dating, but I can admit it now, I was just a sappy dude, lost in love, who wanted a girl who was the life of the party, who swears that she's artsy, but could distinguish the difference between Miles and Coltrane. If you know those song lyrics, I see you, fellow Mayerhead. Taking a step back, I know I've generalized quite a bit, and I recognize that not everyone looks at the world the same way that I do. In fact, I know some of these people personally, and knowing what I know now, I'm thankful for them. It gives me hope that in a world where many choose to be cynics and trolls, that there are still people, likely some listening to this podcast, who don't care who knows what they like and what moves them.
1: Hey. What's up?
0: Meet Jeremy. He's an actor, barista, chess teacher, and professional experiencer of authenticity. He's also my brother-in-law. Yes, I know. I promise I know more people than the
1: ones I'm related to. I think the way that like, myself and the my siblings learned how to express emotion and, and react to things of beauty um, is in a visceral way, because I can sit here and... And, and like recall memories of my father who, when he is like listening to a story, um, especially a story that's really impactful or a powerful thing that he's listening to and is very intently listening to it, his face will start to take on the emotions of the story in the moment and so all of a sudden if the if the story is angry his face will contort in a sort of anger if there's a moment of compassion or mercy his face will soften um and so growing up as kids we learned that uh you interact with art um not just with how it affects you mentally but also your body is participating in the experience which i think and so we were we we He modeled a certain type of behavior that allowed us and gave us permission um, as young children and artists growing up that if something affects you and moves you, you don't have to just internalize it, you can also externalize it as it's happening. Um, And that's a very powerful thing that I don't think I realized I do now as an adult until like, I look at it from a helicopter point of view because that's just how I react to art. Um, I think because of that, I cry at lots of movies.
0: Being willing to be so affected by a beautiful piece of art, theater, film, or music to the point of tears is hard for most of us. But for others like Jeremy, it makes life worth living. And for me, it kind of makes me think that he may be on to something.
1: What drives me and my want to create art and to create stories is an innate desire to connect with others. And you can't do that in a disingenuous way or people feel um, lied to or they feel manipulated. And, and maybe there are some kinds of art that you are intentionally manipulating people to prove a point, but that is not my avenue. And that's not what I'm trying to do, is that in my world, I think that authenticity and and a sense of genuineness are paramount in the stories that i'm trying to tell because in order to have empathy with anyone different than you you have to have some sense of context and stories and art are one of the most accessible ways to create context between people who are different than one another, which is why I'm such an advocate of the theater. It's one of the last bastions of art where you're asking groups of people to come and sit in a room to remove themselves from their cell phones, from distractions, from the world outside of the theater, and to sit and watch a performance or a piece of art. And that at the end of that production, after everyone paying attention to something at the same time, Everyone in that theater now immediately has context with each other because they've experienced something that was unique and that is ephemeral to that moment.
0: When was the last time that you felt authentic joy? When was the last time that you did and were willing to admit it? As you can probably surmise, I kind of don't like to let others know when it happens to me. I guess it's a defense mechanism. Most of my adult life, these moments of pure, unironic liking of things only happen behind closed doors, and almost certainly only around select people. But despite all of that, I am still human. I'd always heard from other parents that everything changes when you hold your newborn child for the first time. Not so for me. At the time of my daughter Isla's birth, I was still a bit iffy about having kids. And even after holding her and looking into her eyes for the first time, I was still not really any different. Being a dad was hard for me for the first couple of years, and I struggled to find a true connection with that cute little poop monster. I was kind of ashamed to admit it. It was basically like she was my roommate. A roommate that didn't pay her portion of the bills, would make a huge mess, and had a knack for ruining my most intimate of moments. It had become my identity. Not good with children, but has one. She fell asleep. Fast forward to a few months ago, when I begrudgingly started to put my daughter to bed with more regularity. At this point, she had started talking more than she ever had before. She had been asking for me to put her to bed, and that, coupled with the feeling that I had that I was really a bad father, really spurred me into action. She didn't care if I misread pages of her book, and she found it funny if I would make up voices for each character that was completely different than mommy's voices. And sometimes I would interject with fact-filled tangents about things that were way over her head. but. She would always giggle and tell me, that's funny, Daddy. What happened to her body? (laughs) Well, it's just the way it's drawn. She looks a little contorted, but she's just been down. One night, after a spirited reading of Go Dogs Go, a personal favorite of mine growing up, and midway through the first verse of what had become my go-to bedtime song, Edelweiss from The Sound of Music, it struck me that this was the same song my father used to sing to me over 30 years ago when putting me to bed. This was one of my dearest childhood memories and one that I likely will never forget. As I started singing the second verse, the one that I made up using her name, this Grinch's heart grew three sizes. While I still may enjoy my fair share of irony and may still occasionally snobbishly reject things for no other reason than being on brand, I can't help but question myself and be reminded of why I should keep an open mind. And now I say, I don't really like kids, but I love mine, so don't ask me to babysit. Despite that, I can't be cynical or care about what parental image I portray anymore. I genuinely love my daughter. She brings me lots of authentic joy, and I don't care who knows it. The big
1: bite. <laughs>